It's Friday, July 25th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So there are these expressions, these, these phrases that in their very utterance rebut the actual point the speaker is trying to make. Like, uh, I'm not racist, but that's a big one. Or, and this is especially true if you have the New York accent, I'm a legitimate businessman. Like, it's just as soon as you say it out loud, you really cast doubt on yourself. I guess if you tried it with the Eastern European accent, you know, maybe it could work. I am just a legitimate businessman. I cannot give these bribes. I don't even know if that's Eastern European. It's just not, I'm a legitimate businessman. I have been supplying pinky rings and hauling services for many years. Another one like this, I'm king of the world. And I was thinking about this one. We've been hearing it for about five months. Let's listen to this claim. Iggy Azalea's fancy number one hit, self-disproving statement. The truly fancy, and I've seen the truly fancy, though they rarely walk among us. The truly fancy need not proclaim their fanciness. Here's a little thought experiment that I like to engage in. Let's say that you work as a bellhop in a hotel, a nice hotel, right? And a guest comes in and you think... You know, she might be the Queen of England. You're not sure if she's the Queen of England. She fits the profile. Maybe she has a bunch of corgis and attendants. You know, maybe she's just merely queen-like. But, you know, she could be the Queen of England. Here's the test. You show her the room. You open the doors in a grand sweeping gesture. It's a big room. It's got a sunken living room. There's a king bed, which is something of an irony. And she takes in the whole scene. If she sees all this, and then what comes out of her mouth is... Oh, fancy. She's not the Queen of England. Now, Iggy Azalea, I think, is the kind of person who gets credit for being in on the joke, for like knowing what her public persona is or whatever. But really, who cares? She ain't fancy. Another interesting Iggy Azalea fact is that her real name is Amethyst Kelly, which ain't a bad name, right? It's almost like Barbara Stanwyck, whose real name was Ruby Stevens. Today, if there was a young ingenue named Barbara Stanwyck, we would pretty much expect her to change to something like Ruby Stevens because it sounds much more fancy. Today on the show, we discuss the past three weeks. Yes, it's another Antan Twig. And also a post-Prudy impact statement. But first, let's look at this proposed merger of media giants as just Rupert Murdoch desperately playing catch-up. Last week, Rupert Murdoch's 21st Century Fox film and entertainment company offered to buy Time Warner Inc., For about $80 billion, that would be a nice premium for Time Warner shareholders, though there is a complication with voting shares versus non-voting shares. That's a little more in the weeds than I'd like to get. What I want to talk about is two giant media companies and consolidation in the media, because that can have big impacts on consumers. And let's be clear what's not part of the offer. Time Warner is a name attached to a lot of properties, but we're not talking about Time Warner Cable. We're not talking about the magazines like Sports Illustrated. We're probably not talking about CNN, because regulators would not want one person owning both Fox News and CNN, and Rupert Murdoch knows that Fox News makes a lot more money. Well, joining me now is Susan Crawford, the John A. Riley Visiting Professor in Intellectual Property at Harvard Law School and the author of the book Captive Audience. Thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me here. Absolutely. So these entities, they make a lot of content. United, they would save costs, sure, 
should consumers worry if they were to team up or would this just mean that the makers of big blockbuster movies will now have one boss instead of two? Well, consumers should really worry that we've got this ecosystem that's perfectly engineered to raise prices, both for programmers and uh, for distribution. And consumers are getting squeezed. We're going to continue to pay more. What's going on here is that Murdoch wants to make sure he has the heft to beat up on Comcast, because when Comcast merges with Time Warner Cable, the other part that's not in this deal, when Time Class merges with the other distributor, they're going to pass 70% of American homes. And so Murdoch needs to be big enough, have enough sports under his belt, enough popular shows and channels like HBO, that Comcast needs him more than he needs Comcast. Do you think Rupert Murdoch would be smarter to get this deal done, or he can't do this, but let's say he could snap his fingers to get the Comcast Time Warner cable deal blocked? Well, Murdoch likes being big and likes having sports, so he would enjoy doing this either way, but he's got a reason to need to do it now. Hollywood is spooked by the Comcast Time Warner Cable merger. They understand that if it goes through, they don't have control over their destinies. So all the programmers are trying to figure out what to do. Murdoch, he seems to be a law unto himself. Now, it does seem to me that if you want to make the money, the big money, you'd be better off being a Comcast, being a cable company. And I think this lesson goes back to Lou Wasserman and Titans of Old, who knew that, yeah, you could make movies that are popular or you could make music that's popular, but the best thing to do is to get a captive audience and milk them, milk them, milk them, so that, like a cable company does, you know, you have no competitors and you can basically charge what you want. Seems like a better business model than relying on making the most popular tentpole movie because that's more fickle. Right. What you want to do is control the distribution market. You want to be the bottleneck. You want to be the person to whom tribute is paid in order for content to reach subscribers. And Comcast has really maneuvered itself over a decade of consolidation and very skillful management into being that bottleneck. And it is the right business to be in. And they're seeing their profits skyrocket and they're very well managed and things are going extremely well. So, I wrote a book called Captive Audience, which in essence is an argument to buy cable. It's a very successful business. It seems if we take another lesson from a similar industry, let's look at phones, right? T-Mobile, there was supposed to be a merger, and that was actually not allowed. And now if you look at what T-Mobile is doing, people who actively point out that we can't allow consolidation to happen left and right say, look at T-Mobile, look at what an innovative company they are, look at the different plans they offer consumers, look at all this innovation that they're doing that they probably wouldn't even need to do if they were allowed to combine with Sprint or some other company and just be some huge uh, monolith with a captive audience. (laughs) You're exactly right. In fact, that blocking the merger between AT&T and T-Mobile has so far been the high-water mark of antitrust policy under the Obama administration, and it has made a huge difference. T-Mobile is the maverick. They're doing all kinds of new kinds of plans. Uh, Now, they're talking about merging with Sprint, and those two companies going it together will be far less innovative and challenging to the duopoly, um, as, uh, which is AT&T and Verizon, uh, than they will be alone. The Comcast-Time Warner cable merger that looks like it's going to go through. You know, they always put forth alternatives. This is why it won't be a monopoly. Here are all these other ways that consumers have of getting their content. So what are they talking about when they at least give lip service to all these alternative means? Do they raise the Dish Network and Amazon Prime? What's at least 
on paper the alternatives to being beholden to a huge cable company? Well, Comcast is very good at, at misdirection. And what they say is, look, after this merger is through, we'll only control 30% of the video marketplace in the United States. What they're doing is giving a lot of credit to the satellite companies, DirecTV, which, by the way, has already announced it's going to merge with AT&T and DISH. What that misses is that that's really not the relevant market. Satellite can't sell a wire to your home, and everybody needs high-speed Internet access as well as pay TV. So the real market is for wires to the home, and in that marketplace, Comcast is going to control or pass 70% of American households. They'll be the only choice for all those households for very high-capacity wires. That's enormous market power, and that's what Comcast doesn't want people to figure out. Does it surprise you that the issue of cable mergers hasn't gotten more traction just among regular consumers who don't want to be held captive to these cable companies? We're all the frogs being boiled. It's very hard for a consumer to lift up his head and say, oh, my God, there are mergers going on. We're just trying to survive out here. I think the merger of Time Warner Cable and Comcast has gotten people to wake up because it's like Shamu and Godzilla merging. How could they possibly merge? And that really connects to the net neutrality fight in America. How could these guys have so much power over everything we watch and listen and read? So uh, the American public's getting interested in this. Gradually, I'm, I'm a little worried it's, a, it's too late. Is the writing on the wall that it's going to go through? The problem is we've got a regulator who sees it as very attractive to get deals done and put conditions on those deals rather than regulating through the front door and just issuing rules. So there is the, the, the talk in Washington is that it's likely that the Comcast, the Comcast Time Warner cable merger will go through. And I'm distressed by that. I think it's too bad. Maybe I'm just feeling dyspeptic today, but... None of these things seems to get people riled enough to get them stopped. Yeah, well, dyspepsia. It, it fuels the columns for <laughs> Bloomberg View and maybe allows you to be a professor. But I don't know if it's so good for the rest of us. But use it. Use it, Susan. <laughs> I'll do my best. I really will. It's a tough time out there, it, Mike. It's, it's really difficult. Susan Crawford is author of Captive Audience, the Telecom Industry and Monopoly Power in the New Gilded Age. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me on. People, people throughout the world, they write to dear prudence. They need advice on matters of love, on matters of finance, on matters of, well, we're going to see one right here, matters of husbands who are looking to take a drive. Emily Yaffe writes the Dear Prudence column, and she joins me now for this, a post-prudence impact statement where we get in touch with people who've written to Dear Prudence, where they've taken or not taken some advice, and then we see what happens. Hello, Emily. Hello. So why don't you tell me about, uh, I think Just Say No is the letter writer in this case. Just Say No is happily married. Her husband has a dear female friend. Uh, They've known each other for a long time. They dated briefly, but they're just platonic friends. She, in fact, got married, so as a foursome, they would see each other. She's recently separated from her husband, and... She's been relying more and more on Just Say No's husband Mm -hmm. uh, for emotional support. Just Say No says, I understand that. But recently, she asked Just Say No's husband to fly across country with her to her old home, pick up her old car, and then the two of them would drive across the country. Mm. And Just Say No was 
somewhat put out by this and didn't like it. And the husband was, well, you're telling me I can't have female friends? What's this about? So she wrote, for my opinion. Now, the you're telling me I can't have female friends is a mischaracterization of what she's telling him. I am a big advocate of cross-gender friendships. But, you know, it's one thing to not be the jealous type. It's another thing to be the chump type. Mm-hmm. I, you know, uh, we fly across the country. Then we drive. I don't know which direction they're driving, but I predicted by Ohio uh, they would no longer be platonic friends. Right. <laughs> so from the West Coast, you're giving him more credit. If it's from <laughs> right. the East Coast, he's pretty weak. Yeah. So you took this all in and you told just say no what? Just say no. This is her planning a fun getaway. I, you know, this woman, the the platonic friend, is single now. I said I think she's not planning to be single for long. Yeah. So I, I thought the whole thing was ludicrous. All right, let's call her. Let's see what she did. Hello. Is this just say no? Yes. Yes. No. Hello. <laughs> it is. is. Hello. Is this no? <laughs> no. No, this is no. Who's on first? Okay. Hello, Just Say No. How are you? Hi, I'm good. I'm here with uh, Prudy. No one's using their real names, I guess. I'm here with Emily, and we're calling to see how things went. But first, we didn't even know what coast you were on, so that will inform us. Are you a West Coaster or an East Coaster? West. Uh, oh, okay. So by Ohio, you were giving them some credit, Emily. Yeah. Well, accidentally, I didn't know where the beginning and end was. All right, Emily, take it from here. So, give us an update. Did this trip happen? Did you put the kibosh on it? Did you tell your husband, this friendship is out of control? What's the situation? Um, it did not happen. And when it was originally proposed to me, there wasn't any sort of time frame. So, I didn't know when it was going to happen to begin with. And things kind of just fizzled out from there. I never heard of it again. So while at the time it seemed like it was something that was going to happen and and my husband seemed pretty interested, um, nothing came of it. When you said, uh, I don't want this to happen, did you show him the column? How did you back up your opinion? Or did you just let the logic of it sit with him? No, I actually, I did show him the column and especially all the comments that people had made. And and (laughs) I was really interested to read all of those or a lot of uh, dissenting opinions in the comments and people who thought that men and women couldn't be friends, people who thought that I should let my husband go and not care about it, people who thought I should definitely stand up for myself. I mean, just all sorts of opinions. Did you suspect that most of the people saying, let my husband go, were this one woman with different aliases? (laughs) (laughs) Um, No. (laughs) Did you tell your husband you were writing in, or you just showed him after it appeared? I just showed him after it appeared. I did not tell him. And he wasn't upset that you went to an advice columnist for this? No, actually, he wasn't. Um, he was really calm about the whole thing, and when I showed him, he, he saw kind of where I was coming from. I think the night that he told me about the trip, you know, it might have taken a few days for it to sink into him and for him to think about what I had said and, and how where I was coming from and how I felt about it. So I kind of heard about it and kind of wrote in right away, and then after the fact, we both had time to kind of process and come to not necessarily an agreement because nothing ever came of the trip, but um, we definitely 
understood each other's positions better. This is a very happy ending. Happy ending. Thanks so much, Just Say No. Thank you. I appreciate it. Sure. Thanks. Bye. So it's good to hear from a satisfied customer. And we should add, if you have written to Prudy before and would like to be part of a post-Prudy impact statement, we'd love to pursue that. The gist at Slate.com or Dear Prudence. And I loved that she wrote to me and then showed her husband that you see how our dilemma looks in black and white? You do say, and uh, this is, I think, healthy, cross-gender relationships are good, but you got to raise the red flag. What's the line with you? The length of this interaction, the necessity of overnight stays, what was it that jumped out as too far? Well, this just crossed every kind of line. It's, I'm taking your husband for physical, emotional support on a trip. He's going to use his vacation time to be with me. We're going to be in an intimate environment for an extended period. It's it's just a million red flags. Uh, There's nothing wrong if he was going out to dinner with her, and I can even understand just say no, saying, hey, you two go. I can't hear another about another weepy evening. So I I think it's more uh, a gut thing. Um, you know, I don't think it's you can't be in a car with this person. There are people who commute, you know, men and women who commute and nothing happens, although I've heard that they fall in love, I guess, over listening to NPR. But, uh, you know, I think maybe the easy pass lane. Who knows? Yeah, it's very romantic. (laughs) Bumper to bumper on the BQA spawns love. Exactly. But, you know, it's a fine line between am I being unreasonably jealous or is a third party threatening my marriage? And I think if you're quite clear, I'm not being unreasonable, but this is making me uncomfortable. You have to bring that up. Emily Offie writes the Dear Prudence column for Slate, and we do these post prudy impact statements just about every other week. Thanks so much. My pleasure. And now the spiel. It is time. Three weeks have passed. You know the backstory. If you've read any of the books in the Song of Lobster and Flag series that this podcast is based on, you know that three weeks means it's time for another Antan Twig. Just as this land is your land was an angry answer to God bless America, so too does the idea of the Antan Twig stem from the concept of the fortnight. Indeed, Antan Twig is a deep corruption of the old English word for the number 21. If you've never heard of the Antan Twig before or are unaccustomed to its ways and mores, you need not be put off. For what I will do within the structure of this Antan Twig is to correct, to clarify, and to coronate a listener of renown. First off, some corrections. I said Alana Kagan instead of Elena Kagan. It happens. She's Elena Kagan. I said Gareth Bales instead of soccer ball player Gareth Bale. He's from Wales, so I guess I thought it'd be better if it was Gareth Bales from Wales. I referenced an instrument which I thought was some sort of sitar. Twasn't a sitar. Twas a Chapman stick. My friend Lichman told me if I ever went to one of those Anderson, Buford, Wakeman, and Howe concerts with him, I would have known about the Chapman stick. And now here's an interesting thing about those three mistakes. They all happened in one show. In fact, it was a show exactly three weeks ago today. Yes, it was an Antan twig. These mistakes were all made during the correction segment. Who will correct the corrections? Now let me give you a little peek behind the curtain. 
each Antan twig, I correct all the mistakes. I settle all family business. But then I get a little anxious about the next batch of corrections. What if there are no corrections for next week? How will I fill the time? Will I have to tap dance around and make up hypothetical stories about bellhops and the Queen of England? So I lace the corrections with a few little mistakes. I do this consciously. This way, I know that I'll have at least something to correct. I can't rely on just luck. I have to lay some groundwork because luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. Folk singer Joan Baez said that. But there were other corrections, and I'll tell you some of them. I said Robert E. Lee's horse was Challenger. It wasn't Challenger. His horse was Traveler. Challenger, however, was the model of the car from the Dukes of Hazard. It was a Dodge Challenger, the General Lee. No, it wasn't. It was a Dodge Charger. Damn it. And the other day I was talking up Sioux Falls and I didn't know what a timber strike was. And then a listener got in touch with me and said, two years ago, Sioux Falls suffered a massive ice storm that took out about a third of the trees in Sioux Falls. And then they were trying to pick up the trees and the tree branches. And then there was again a second effort to remove all the dead tree branches from people's homes. And this was the timber strike. So cool. Thank you, listener Charles. That makes you, listener Charles, long listed for a lobstar of the and 10 Twig Award. But listener Charles did not make the shortlist. No, the award for outstanding listener, outstanding contributor, interacterer, Facebooker, Twitter, tour tour. Our Lobstar Award goes to, well, first let me announce the first runner-up. The first runner-up is Kestrel Wogglemuth. Kestrel Isley Wogglemuth. Why is she the first runner-up? Well, she wrote a very nice email to us. She says she'll be starting a master's program at the University College in Dublin, the degree in media and international conflict. She wants to start a podcast, maybe not as often as the gist, but kind of gist-like. And I said, all this is good. And if I name you Lobstar or Almost Lobstar, I get to say that Kestrel Isley Wogglemuth is the associate lobstar. And so you are, Ms. Wogglemuth. But the main lobstar of this Antan twig is Benjamin Klein. Benjamin Klein heard my segment where I was trying to memorize the Star Spangled Banner. Wait, let's see how that's going. From the shores dimly seen through the mists of the deep. Something about the foe's silent, dread silence from the foe's haughty depth dread silence reposes. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Anyway, so I'm trying to memorize the national anthem and we're talking about Francis Scott Key and I start listing the names of the ships who were in the harbor while Fort McHenry was attacked. And he noticed the names of two of these ships and he said, wait a minute, are those the two ships from the failed Franklin Arctic expedition? So he does some deep research, meaning goes to Wikipedia and he finds out that the ship named the Terror, which was in Fort McHenry Harbor, was in fact the same Terror that was part of the Franklin Arctic expedition And a ship named the Erebus was a similar type of ship, but actually it just had the same name as an earlier ship. But that's cool, right? That our national anthem has this connection to an expedition that ended in cannibalism. I like it, and therefore you, Benjamin Klein, you are the lobstar of this Anten Twig. Now, one more piece of business, and it is about Red Lobster. And you know how this whole thing happened, right? They have an award called the Lobstar, and we said, that's cute. We're going to take it. We're going to twist it a little bit, make it our own, and so we call it the Lobstar. So I just found out that Red Lobster has introduced lobster-topped entrees because, wait, do you even have to finish the sentence after because? Because who the hell doesn't want chunks of lobster on top of their entree? 
However, I want you to listen to this commercial about 18 seconds in, and I think you will see and hear the part where the space-time crustacean continuum gets a little bent. How did Red Lobster make four amazing entrees even better? With lobster. Don't miss our first ever Lobster Toppers event. Four delicious entrees topped with sweet, succulent maritime lobster starting at just okay, wait, wait. Stop the tape right here. The Lobster Topper event? They have this idea, this fantastic idea to put lobster on things, and all they could come up with is the lobster topper event. I'm going to help you, Red Lobster. Just going to uh, do a little brainstorming here. We'll top delicious entrees with lobster. We call them Tip Topsters, right? You take that one. That's free. Or we've reached peak lobster. It's Lobster Summit 2014 at Red Lobster. How about party like a rock star and top it with a lobster? Top it with a lobster. You can't. All right. Here's the big one. I give you the lobster zenith. Can we get the theme from 2001, Andrea? Thus spaketh Zaralopthra. Let's go back to the commercial. With sweet, succulent maritime lobster starting at just $16.99. Like savory new fire-grilled shrimp topped with maritime lobster and a citrus hollandaise. Or the new ultimate lobster top lobster. Three split lobster tails topped. Did you hear what the dude said? Lobster topped lobster. Isn't that just a bigger lobster? The one thing you can't top a lobster with is another lobster. How do you know when the foundational lobster ends and the bonus supplemental lobster begins? It's all one lobster continuum. It's like if there were a cake of just frosting and then you decide to put some icing on that. Or if an entire short story were all denouement. Or it's like a hat wearing a hat. Actually, I can imagine a hat wearing a hat. Like a dancing hat, like a bowler mascot, and he has a smaller, cuter hat on his head. All right, that plays. But So it's like a sweatshirt wearing a sweatshirt. It's like if there were an entire episode of Mork and Mindy with Mork just talking to Orson, or Mr. Cotter just telling jokes about his uncles, or a Sex in the City where the entire episode was us reading Carrie's computer screen, and then they wanted to end the episode with Carrie writing on her computer screen, or Mr. Cotter. Potter's uncle, or Mork calling Orson, or some reference from the last 15 years. You can't top a thing with more of the thing. It's not the top. It's just the thing. Cherry on top. That makes sense. Cherry on top of a sundae. You know what cherry on top doesn't make sense? Cherry on top of a bunch of other cherries. Just more cherries. This is why 7-Eleven has the big gulp and the super big gulp. They don't say, hey, take a big gulp and top it with eight more ounces of soda. No, they're smart enough to call that the super big gulp. And they don't say, take Take a super big gulp and throw some more soda in there. No, that's called the double gulp. 7-Eleven knows what they're doing. So what I'm saying is top it with a lobster, sure. And then on the way home, stop by for a double big gulp. And then go home and crawl under the covers and pop in your earbuds and listen to every gist episode ever recorded as you slip into a well-deserved coma of consumption. That's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, producer of Slate Podcasts, would like to order the flounder stuffed with a flounder. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is going to resend back to the kitchen the twice-baked beans for another retry. You can subscribe on iTunes and give us a review. You can listen to us in Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud. Our daily email, which means we'll send it to you. You go to slate.com slash gist email, and we'll send you an email. You know, we have a Twitter feed, too. It's Slate Gist, and we're on Facebook, facebook.com 
slate.com slash slate gist. Email the gist at slate.com. True story, I once got sick after eating a turducken, and as a result, the world got to meet the Chick Duck Turk. So I'm sorry for that revolting image, but I thank you for listening.